Hey, let's talk about anxiety. Oh, deep breath, Val. <laughs> what are some of the things that make you anxious? What? Children talking about it? Traffic? Really? What are some of the things that make you anxious? Anything else? Relationships. Don't elbow him. Not yours, not yours. No, 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 no. Good as gold. Good as gold. Good as gold. They were the first wedding I did in the vineyard. How many years? 26 years ago. Yeah, that's adorable. 47. According to WebMD, so it must be true. Top five producers of anxiety in our culture. Number five, worry about becoming seriously or terminally ill. <gasps> Do you feel that? You feel alone? Stress we feel from loss, like a job, loss of a job, loss of a loved one, of course. Number three, we probably won't surprise you, financial worry about the present and the future. Don't you just love it when you're like just watching football on a Sunday afternoon, you're totally chill, and then the whale comes on and talks about how you're not saving enough money to retire, and who knows what I'm talking about, right? And you're, you're just like, oh, maybe, maybe they're right. I'm going to die poor. Yeah. Stress, number two, stress in, in an important personal relationship. The number one cause of anxiety among Americans these days, are you ready, is about going to work or school. Can you relate, Christian? Yeah. <laughs> Preach. Number one anxiety. In case you're unfamiliar with what anxiety is, I can help you experience it right now, if you like. Just hold your breath. Go ahead. Hold your breath. And in the next 30 to 90 seconds from now, you will begin to feel anxious. You will begin to feel the lack of oxygen. Does it help to puff your cheeks out? All right. Oh, somebody let go. You laughed. And if, you're, if that doesn't do it, because if you're just telling yourself, well, I'm going to breathe in a minute, just have your neighbor take a pillow and put it over your face, okay? Anxiety. It's that sense of panic that something is going to go wrong. I think one of the most anxiety-producing realities, and maybe it was like a, a, a sub, subtext of, of the financial worry, but one of the most anxiety-producing realities in our day is the possibility of identity theft. The possibility that someone, somewhere, can remotely figure out how to trick the system into believing that they are you. Well, yeah, oh yeah, go ahead and breathe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Note for second service. <laughs> Invite them to begin breathing. Very good. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. I just thought people were falling out in the Holy Spirit back there, but... So you are, you know, you're sitting there watching your favorite uh, Brit TV, maybe a little Downton Abbey who saw the movie. Oh, great. Wasn't it just great? 
for people who love the show, it was just great. Yeah, maybe you're into a little pool dark. I don't know, any pool dark fans in the room? Yeah, isn't that good? Nine o'clock tonight, right? Yeah, okay. I don't have one of those recordy thingies. Okay, I have to watch it when it's on. Okay, so you're watching something, and then along comes the LifeLock commercial, right? And you start to feel like, oh, maybe, I should, maybe, I should, maybe I should do that. The thought that somebody could trick the system into believing that they are you, and what they, what they take from you at that point is not only your value, in a sense, but your authority. They take away your authority when they steal your identity. Because really only you should have authority to say what goes on in that realm, right? It is your solitary authority to decide the issues of your finances. And when someone comes in and steals your identity, they also steal your authority. Because they can pose as you as though they are exercising your authority. And I understand that once your identity is stolen, it can be very difficult to get it back. There's a process because you have to prove that you are you so that you can regain your authority to, to reestablish your world. You have to compare yourself to some set of records that, that convinces them that you are you. I feel like the past couple of months we've been talking about identity theft of the church and reclaiming our identity because I think in so many ways the identity of the church in the West has largely been stolen. That we've forgotten who we are. And we've lost our way. And there are so many downsides to that, not the least of which is in losing our identity as the church from a biblical and Holy Spirit perspective, we lose our authority. Someone else has our authority as, as, as long as we do not step up into our identity. To reclaim your identity, you need evidence, and you need a restoration image. This is a picture of myself. Do not mistake it with this person who says they're me. And so you need an image to compare with so that you can prove that you are yourself. The restoration image that we've been using over these last several weeks is the picture in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Now, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. It is up on the screen for your convenience behind me. If you're new to the Bible, I'm so glad you're here. When we say something like Acts 2, 42 through 47, let me just take a real quick second just to explain. Because when I became a Christian, I didn't know any of this stuff. So when we say Acts, if you look at your Bible at the top of every, if, if this is just way too primary, forgive me, but if you just look at the top, there's a, there's a name. It says like John or First Peter or something like that. that. Those we call books, and there are 66 of them in the Bible. There are 39 in the Old Testament, which is before Jesus, and there are 27 in the New Testament, which is from Jesus on. Now the book of Acts is in the New Testament. It's about that far. It's about a quarter of an inch from the back in your Bible. And you'll find then there are numbers. And those big numbers we call chapters. And they're not as long as a book chapter, but we call them chapters. And then there are little numbers throughout the chapters that we call verses. 
So when we say something like Acts, we mean the book of Acts. And when you see the big two by, by itself, it's Acts chapter 2, and then a colon or a dot or something, and then it says 42 through 47, we're going to be looking at verses 42 through 47, okay? I don't ever want to leave anybody behind here, okay? So that's what we've been using as the Bible's restoration image, that this is what the church is supposed to look like, and so if we're going to go and get our identity back, we have to use this picture. This is a, a picture of the early church. There were about 3,000 who were suddenly added to the church. Uh, we learned in high school youth ministry on Wednesday night that a couple of pages over, they added another 5,000, and so it suddenly mushrooms to 8,000 people. And so you have this rapidly growing church, and, um, and, and, and this is the real church to which we're to compare ourselves and say, yeah, that's who we want to be. That's what we want. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now, here's the part that's of great interest to us today. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's, Lord, we invite you to come and be the teacher. I'll, I'll be the mouthpiece if you'll be the teacher, Lord. Would you come into our assembly now, into our gathering, and would you come and in the power of your Holy Spirit, and would you make this something a lot deeper than cerebral, something in our, in our heads, Lord? Would you cause the message of this message to go to our hearts? We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as we go through this, thus far in the series, this passage has identified seven, uh, se or this passage identifies seven key marks thus far we've considered five of them. First of all, they worshiped, that if it's a real church worships, it says praising God. This church was rich with vibrant worship. The people were engaged in coming together and worshiping God. Uh, they also prayed. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. And throughout the book of Acts, you just find them collected together in various configurations just to pray just to come to God as a, a group or a subgroup and pray. Uh, it also, it also, you also saw that, that unbelievers consistently found their way to faith in Christ. It says the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So that this, this young church, the real church, is one in which people are getting saved like all the time. This is not unusual, like, ah, somebody got saved. But it's like, well, of course, somebody got saved because we came together and the Lord moved, and how can you resist the Lord? You see, all of these factors, all of these features are factored by the presence of God's Holy Spirit, which is what caused this to be this church. Uh, they, they were devoted to the Word of God as their absolute standard of living, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they didn't know how to be as a community, they needed guidance, and so the Lord used the apostles to teach them, and in so doing, inspired what we have in our hands today as the New Testament. And so, it, from, for, from our perspective, a real church is devoted to the Word of God 
as the absolute standard. There's no sort of fooling around with it. There's, a, a, an, of course, in every attempt to understand it and interpret it and apply it, but what it says, it says, and it will not be changed. And then as uh, Pastor Christian uh, shared with you last week, they were frequently visited by the Holy Spirit uh, in amazing demonstrations of power and signs and wonders that the people were being healed and miracles were happening. And this is the mark of a, of a true church. The, these are the marks we've seen so far. And today, I'd like to show you that a distinguishing mark of, of Holy Spirit's fingerprint on his church is that the people freely loved each other. They freely loved each other. They were open to a, a loving relationship. That they were a community of radical love for each other. I use this picture for this slide because uh, some of you know that this summer I had the privilege of uh, being joined by a couple other adults of leading what we called the Finding Jesus Tour, where we took 10 high schoolers and we uh, camped them out on my property for four days, and every morning we'd get up and we'd pray and we'd throw a dart at the map, and wherever it went in Ohio, off we went to that place to, to find Jesus. And God just moved in such, such powerful ways. This was about day three, I think, and we'd come back. Uh, we felt like the Lord was calling us to come back and pray for someone in particular, so we said, let's go back and walk the wall and crowd into the little hiding place, the little prayer hut that we have out there. And so I said, well, you guys go walk the wall and pray. So off they went, and I look up, and there's four of them there. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's a demonstration that they freely loved each other. That's what happens when believers put down their guard, put down their bones, and enter in to consistent relationships. That's what happens in three days. These are regular high school teenagers. They don't glow in the dark. And yet this is what God does with them in three days. And this is such a picture of the church. It's a distinguishing mark of his church. And according to this passage, there were four things in particular that characterized their love. And first they were together. In verse uh, 44, and by the way, for those of you who are new also, see where it says 44 in parentheses? That's always like a reference to the verse. So it's like, where in the passage are we, are we trying to think? Verse 44 says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They were together. They were together. <laughs> Relationship requires proximity, doesn't it? It really does. And in our age, we're in this massive sort of redefinition of relationship because of online relationships and social media and stuff. And I'm not altogether against it. I'm just saying, let's not, let's not settle for you know, some sort of virtual relationship when there's nothing quite like getting a hug from John Berger in person. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Come on, let me, let me, let me just demonstrate. Yeah, come on, man. come on, brother. Come on. Come on, man. I love you, man. Love you. Okay. See, with a microphone, it's even bigger. Okay. <laughs> they were together. Relationship requires proximity. We need to get in each other's spaces, each other's real worlds. How many of you have had uh, 
trouble with digital communication. <laughs> Anybody? Anybody have a, that's not exactly what I meant moment? Or that is exactly what I meant, but I'm going to pretend like that's not exactly what I meant moment? Anybody? Yeah. yeah. It's hard to get away with that when you're doing this, right? <laughs> when you're looking eye to eye. Relationship requires proximity. They were together. It was a mark of the first century church. They always wanted to be together. And it said they had everything in common because relationship requires a commonality, doesn't it? You know what you have in common with everybody else in this room right now? Jesus Christ. Come on, guys. Jesus Christ lives inside of you. His finished work on the cross, you received that. You've encountered his Holy Spirit. John, you and I are connected by that. We have that in common. Right? And guess what, brother? We're going to heaven after this. What? Now that's getting a lot more important to my generation. <laughs> As we move toward the front of the line here. But it's true of all of us as believers. The worst thing that could happen to us today is we die and go to heaven. We have that in common. Come on. They were together. And they were together in everything. Surely they worshiped together, but they also were together in being arrested and tortured and martyred and historically were even recorded as singing songs of praise together as they were marched off to their own deaths for their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a together kind of love, right? Second, they were sacrificial. Verse 45, look at it. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Don't you want to go, hey, whoa, pastor, right? Now you're meddling, right? That's a radical sacrifice for sure. It's repeated a page over in Acts chapter 4, Verses 32 and following, it says all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and much grace was given them all, given, uh, was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. How could they be so generous? I think they were so generous because of their perspective that we don't really need this. I, I, I think that they lived in this anticipation of the imminent return of Christ in such a way it's like, well, why would I worry about that when I can sell it and meet the needs of the people I love? I think they were just so, you know, so many of these are Gentiles who'd never had a hope for the God of heaven. And now they have a relationship with the God of heaven. And so their perspective was clearly, I don't need this stuff. If you need it, please take it. Please come. You know, the, historically, the early church was, was known well for two things, feeding the poor and burying the dead. Yeah, they had a reputation for being very generous with feeding the poor, feeding the hungry, but they also gained a reputation for welcoming people who had lost a loved one and providing burial services for them and bringing dignity 
to these otherwise pagan or godless deaths. But they were sacrificial in what they did. Uh, and I, I think really at the, at the center of the Christian life is sacrifice, isn't it? I mean, why are we saved? We're saved because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so sacrifice then becomes part of the foundation of our walk with Jesus. This is a tough sell sometimes in our culture, that sacrifice and generosity in particular. We've just been taught to secure ourselves with wealth. And the Bible says that foundational to our walk with him is sacrifice, generosity, the giving. I don't think we should ever make a fuss about people who give, and we don't here. I've been to some places, and, I, and I, you know how appreciative I am. I, I hope I frequently thank you enough for being faithful to God's call to give. But I've been in places where when you walk down an aisle, if there are pews like in an older church, they have little plaques on the end that said this was donated by, this was donated by, and something beneath the cross, this was donated by. Why would we make a big fuss out of something that should be just so natural and foundational, right? Praise God. They were, uh, or they ate together, verse 46. You'll like this one. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. They ate together. That's not a bad call, is it? The Bible's calling us to eat together. Eating, is a, eating together is an act of spirituality. Look what happens when we eat together. It's, kind of, it's such an equalizer, isn't it? It's such, it levels the field. So you walk into a circle, and it's a Bible study, and you kind of start sizing up who the, who, the, who the big pins in the room are, right? It's so natural for us. To, oh, that guy really knows a lot. Well, she's really, you know, that, that person seems new. And we start to do this thing. Well, if you sit at a table, everybody's the same. So that if, if the great one in the group has a beard and has like cottage cheese hanging on it or something like that, it's like everybody becomes the same when we eat together. And, and the Old Testament uh, festivals were all about eating together. Jesus was all about eating together. Even in his resurrected form, he comes and he says, hey, let's have some fish, right? Let's eat. And there's a power that comes when we eat together. And, and some, of our, some of our home groups are particularly good at this. Kathy's home group, I know, and perhaps some others, are particularly good at routinely writing in, we're not going to Bible study tonight, we're going to eat together. And that's biblical. That counts as a home group meeting. What? Something happens when we eat together. And then last, uh, they were glad with one another. Look at verse, the rest of verse 46. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There's a gladness that's a celebration of community. I'm glad to see like 90% of you on Sunday morning. I'm glad to see you on Sunday morning. You know, you know who you are. I'm glad. I, there, no, come on. There, I'm just messing around. There's a gladness when authentic believers come together, isn't there? There's like a lift. There's a redemptive kind of lift. There's a gladness. There's an esteem. And so they, there's a gladness as part of the community. 
And everything isn't always happy, of course. We, we go through some tough times in our lives, of course. But at the core of it is a joy and a gladness of, of coming together. You know, when I was really new to coming to the Lord, I was about 20 years old, and uh, Karen and I went to see uh, Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill in concert. Woo! Who knows what I'm talking about? Don, right? Man, right? Oh, to, and, oh, to Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill in concert. It was awesome. It was like the first sort of Christian musicians I'd ever heard. And we were sitting, Karen and I were sitting there in this auditorium, and we had some other friends with us. And I saw these people come in a couple rows ahead of us, and they were like long-haired, like Jesus freaks types, you know? And I was thought, huh, I wonder who let the hippies in. Because that's, that's what I was, right? You know the story. And I thought, well, that doesn't work in the church. And I see these people, and they come a couple rows up, and they just hug each other, and they just love each other. And I learned that they were believers. And, and that set a tone for me for the rest of my Christian life. I, there was a gladness. It wasn't stiff. It wasn't religious. It was glad. I love running into you guys in public and outside of here. I love running into you guys in the grocery store. I like to look in your cart. I love, <laughs> I, I love running into you guys in the grocery store. Just this week, I think it was Thursday or something. Some of you know Nina Thomas. She sits here in the second service. And uh, she's walking down. I walk into Kroger, and she's walking down, and she's got a little basket and stuff, and she's looking down. You know, I remember saying hello to the security guard as I walked in. You know, That guy stands there. I said, hey, how you doing? And so like 10 steps later, I do this. I don't know why I did it. I went... Like this. Nina looks up like this. And I'm like. <laughs> I look over my shoulder. This security guard is coming after me, right? Who is this guy? And, but, but Nina got there before the security. And we hugged. And, we, and then he kind of, oh, I'll go. He backed off, you know? <laughs> There's just a gladness, isn't there? This is love. This is love. This was the community. They were glad, they ate together, they praised, they just worshiped. They were just glad together. I'm glad to see you. I'm glad. You gotta let your gladness release when you come into the house, right? Just let your gladness release. Such a wonderful description of this community, right? Don't you want to be a part of that church? I do. Now, two little caveats. I don't want you to make the mistake in your interpretation. First, is that when you read this, you need to understand that everyone wasn't always happy. Yeah, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you find out that Paul had to tell some people to get along. Paul himself had his own troubles in certain relationships. They had to work their way through. You know, Jesus used the word church twice, and both times were connected to conflict. The first time he says, you are my church, Peter, and on the and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The other is in Matthew chapter 18 where he's telling people how to get along in really tough, broken relationships. And he uses the word church there. It's going to happen. So just don't get that in your head that like because you, know, you have a ruffle in the church that that's not a loving place. Yeah. And the, the other thing I think it's so important to understand. You look at this place of such love and they're just so glad to be with each other. It was not an anything goes community. 
You know, you'd, you'd think that that would be like, hey, that's cool. If that's the way you want to live. If that's, if that's what you believe, if that's what you think, if that's your practice, that'd be cool. That wasn't it at all. They were devoted to the word of God. And that always makes some people unhappy because it was a place of radical love, but it doesn't mean that anything goes. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So that everything that is described, you know, in our text, everything that's described in any ver- anything after verse 42 is assumptive of the fact that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So their love was conditioned by But this is what, in our case, the Bible says. And that's what we have to go by. That's what we're going to go by. And this is so important for two things, two reasons. First of all, when a church is dedicated to the Word of God as its objective authority, then it prevents subjectivity. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And so, you know, in our culture we could say, yeah, but you know what seems right to me? Yeah, but if it's not conditioned by the absolute truth of the word of God. It's a path to death. And the other thing that being devoted to the word of God produces is it it actually prevents hero worship. So we get excited about certain people, right? We get it. You know, they're pastors or preachers or authors or singers or whatever, and we get excited about them. And it's like, wow, that's such a great insight. That's such a great way. And, And Paul said, don't say you follow me or Apollos or... Cephas or whatever, you follow Christ. And you see, the word of God is the absolute standard. And when we set that, what happens is that it, when we set that, it produces uh, an objectivity that, that removes hero worship from the equation. Some of you are aware, and maybe these names don't, names don't mean much to you, that more recently Joshua Harris and Marty Simpson, two very influential people in the Christian world, have appeared to have walked away from their faith. People have fallen as a result of that. Because why? Because they were following them and not Jesus. John Cooper, I'm going to show you a video right now, but John Cooper, from, uh, he's the lead singer from Skillet, had something just remarkable and helpful to say about that. Why don't you go ahead and roll that video for us, Patrick? News of two high-profile faith leaders walking away from Christianity is making headlines. Joshua Harris, author of the popular book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, announced last month on Instagram that he was leaving the Christian faith. And Hillsong worship leader Marty Samson says while he hasn't renounced his faith, he is struggling. John Cooper, leader of, uh, lead singer rather, of the Christian rock band Skillet, addressed the issue in a post on Facebook saying Christians need to value truth over feeling. John joins us now via Skype. Welcome, my friend. Everyone is talking about your Facebook post addressing the issue of Christian leaders falling away. Uh, John, why did you feel the need to write this post? Uh, First of all, great to be here. Um, I felt the need to do this uh, not to attack anybody, not out of hatred, not out of anger. I just was sad. I was depressed. Um, These are people that have influenced my life, my kids' lives, my friends' lives, my church. And it's so saddening and so disheartening. And I just want to make a call to the church to grab a hold again of the preeminence of the Word of God. And that there is absolute truth, that Jesus is the way. And these social media platforms are so big and these voices are so loud. 
I just wanted to say, hey, I'm really sad about this. I didn't think anybody would care about my post, to be honest. I didn't think anybody would even read it, but I'm sad about it. And I just pleading for the church to come back to the gospel, to come back to the truth of the word of God that never changes. Uh, John, in your post, you warned Christians to stop making worship leaders and other influencers, including yourself, uh, the most influential people in Christendom. Uh, explain what you mean by this. Yeah, what I mean by this is that if you look the right way, if you sing the right way, if you sound the right way, then you can become uh, a, a, an extremely powerful person in today's Christian culture because unfortunately the church, me included, my, my church included, my family included, unfortunately the church is looking to be entertained. We are not looking to worship God as he ought to be worshiped. We're looking for people to feed us and entertain us. And so what we have is that we're elevating people that sing the right way. And we are letting things get away with lyrics and songs, perhaps, uh, uh, skillet. I've written a lot of songs that I would not want to be sung at church because they are not theologically accurate enough to sing about God's character. So that's what I mean about that. I don't want to be the person that people listen to. I want the word of God to do that. And there are people that are gifted and anointed from God to be sharing the word. And that's who I want to see us elevate. Yeah, you, you mentioned the preeminence of the word of God. Let's talk about that for a few seconds here. You are urging uh, believers to rediscover the preeminence and the value of the word of God. Why is that so important? Well, it's important because we're not just seeing this in the church, we're seeing it all of culture. We are basically seeing the, the uh, grandchildren of 1960s postmodern thought. The, the absolute truth is done. What's true for you might not be true for me. We're seeing it in everything, uh, at, at, in the universities. We're seeing it in politics. Everybody is so confused about what truth is. And the church is supposed to be invading culture with the kingdom of God. And instead, we are letting the culture invade the church. And that's not the way that we're supposed to do it. Jesus is the only thing in this world that will never change. Everything else is going to fall away. Everything else is going to change. But his word stands forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we lose that, then, then we basically lose everything. Uh, real, real quickly, last question. You have been involved in the Christian music scene for many, many years. John, how do you stay balanced and true to the word of God? Through reading the Word of God, through studying it, through my pastors, through the people that I listen to, uh, and as I say, I am no theologian. Nobody wants me to start being a theologian. That's not what I'm trying to do. I stay balanced by by feeding myself truth, even when that truth can sometimes be somewhat inconvenient. There are things about God that I've had to struggle with, uh, and and I realize, you know what? If I'm struggling with who God is. It's not God that needs to change. It's me that needs to change. That's what lordship is about. And we are losing that uh, in a generation of young people. And, and I think that we could be doing a much better job of preaching truth. And it's, and it's not just the, 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 the leaders I'm talking about. I'm talking about all of us. The church, we need to say, you know what? I don't want to look for what is entertaining. I don't want to look to what tickles my ears. I want to look, look for what is right and true. And if my ideas have got it wrong, then I need to change my ideas of, of who God is. Okay, terrific. John, thank you so much. I appreciate your insights and coming on the show. Love it. Amen. Church.
news yeah. of two high-profile We have to uh, seamless transitions here. We have to let the word of God be the absolute authority over us as a church. It is not my opinion. It is God's opinion. It is not the elders. It is not yours. It's what the word of God says. When we find it to be difficult to integrate with our culture or inconvenient, you know, as John Cooper said, it's we who have to change. Let's go back to the love. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. That's the Lord's central mandate for us, is that we figure out how to love each other. And whatever the barriers may be in our lives to that, that we ask God to remove them. You know, when the woman was caught in the act of adultery, Jesus loved her and said, now go and sin no more. And uh, that's true love, isn't it? It's receiving, it's accepting, and always telling the truth. In Matthew 13, 35, or John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love each other. That's the mark. That is the true mark. If we love one another, if we allow ourselves to enter into, yes, an emotional relationship, love is partly emotional, but also a sacrificial, intentional relationship of being together, sacrificing for one another, eating together, praying together, worshiping together, greeting each other in the grocery store with Christian greetings one to another, and just allow ourselves to be authentically moved by the love of God, then, then we'll restore that very nature of the church. Now, when we looked at that passage, from the beginning we've said, the only way that that church existed in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, was because Holy Spirit had just poured himself out on the church. We can't make this happen. But some of you know something about the Bible. You know, some, anybody get to Galatians yet? Three? Galatians chapter 5. It says that the fruit of the Spirit, that's Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is, and then there's a list of evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Some of you know this, but the fruit, how do, you, how do I know if the Holy Spirit's in me? But the fruit of the, so whatever's going to come next is because the Holy Spirit lives. The fruit, of the, it comes naturally because the Holy Spirit's living inside of us. It's fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is, does anybody know what the first thing is? Love. The initial evidence of the Holy Spirit in you is that you have love. I, don't, I think we should give ourselves no rest until that passage describes this church. No rest in praying for God's move of his Holy Spirit in this place. Make us into these men and women, young people, who are characterized by these qualities. That's my heart. Let's stand together, church, please. Let's have some prayer ministry people come on up, please. Make yourselves available to pray for people who might want to come and 
receive prayer for anything. If you have something going on in your life today, these people have been trained to pray with you. If you'd like to come to Christ today, maybe you're here today and you're thinking, today's the day I want to give my life to Jesus as my Savior. Or you just want to ask some questions about it, you can come up to these people and I'd be happy to talk with you. Happy to pray. Feel free to move about the cabin.